Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Protect Your Neck, where we discuss the new British Thoracic Society guidelines on managing neck hematomas after thyroid surgery. As always in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. As anaesthetists working and training under ANSCA's far-reaching umbrella, we tend to look to the difficult airway society for recommendations about airway management, and we model our practice on their guidelines. In September 2021, the difficult airway society, in association with both the British Association of Endocrine and Thyroid Surgeons and the British Association of Otorhinolaryngology, published the latest of their airway guidelines in the journal Anesthesia specifically addressing the way in which we manage hematomas that complicate the post-operative course of thyroid surgical patients. We've linked the article in our episode notes. These guidelines are new consensus guidelines and represent the first of such formal guidelines specific for thyroid surgery to have ever been published. Now, I know that personally, I had an idea of what I'd do in the instance of having a patient with a post-thyroidectomy hematoma and airway compromise, but I personally like having formal guidelines to help standardize care and to assist with visual aids that help me in remembering everything. It's just fantastic. At this point, it's worth mentioning that these guidelines have been developed largely based on expert opinion as there is a paucity of high-grade evidence to guide our management of this particular complication. Okay, so before we start, we want to briefly look at the causes and mechanisms behind post-thyroidectomy airway compromise associated with hematomas. The risk of post-thyroidectomy hemorrhage is about 1 in 100, and in the literature, incidence rates of post-operative hemorrhage vary from 0.45% to 4.2%. But even though it's not common per se, it's important to realise that post-operative hemorrhage can be a potentially fatal complication. And to add further complexity to the situation, the presentation of the bleed will vary depending on whether the location Mm. of the hematoma is superficial or deep. And that's something that I never really appreciated in honesty. Mm. Mm. So what do we mean when we say this? Superficial bleeding occurs when bleeding arises from sources superficial to the strap muscles of the neck and where a superficial hematoma sits between the subplatysmal dissection plane and the strap muscles. Deep hematomas sit between the strap muscles and the thyroid bed. Now, it's important to keep in mind that neck swelling may not be as prominent in cases with a deep hematoma. Patients with neck hematomas may present with neck swelling, skin discoloration, pain and pressure, and potentially patient agitation and respiratory compromise. Many people mistakenly believe that the respiratory compromise in these situations occurs from direct tracheal compression, but it's important to realise that, particularly in situations where there has been no chronic compression of the airways and where the trachea is structurally normal, this is not the case. 
Airway compromise results from the obstruction of the venous drainage from the head and subsequent venous congestion causing tissue edema within the larynx and of the vocal cords. Ultimately, what that means for us is that releasing the patient's sutures and clearing the hematoma from the neck is not going to suddenly reverse airway compromise. Resolution of airway edema takes time and our airway management plan should reflect this. Very interesting. Mm. Postoperative laryngeal and vocal cord edema may also occur independently of either a neck hematoma or a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. And for patients that experience postoperative recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, their presentation too can be quite variable. Because of time constraints, we won't go into that presentation here. That's worth looking at separately. So now onto the guidelines. There are eight recommendations that we will discuss in full one by one, starting with recommendation number one, all staff potentially interacting with patients undergoing thyroid surgery should be trained to recognize hematoma following thyroid surgery. This includes ward staff where patients are nursed and doctors of all grades and specialty. Now, as we mentioned previously, hematoma and airway compromise can be life-threatening and early detection and management is critical. These guidelines have created the acronym DSATS to aid in identification of post-op hematomas. So for the DSATS acronym... D stands for difficulty swallowing and discomfort. E stands for an increase in the early warning score, or in other words, the observation score, where an increase refers to a deviation from normal or pre-existing observation trends. S refers to swelling. A refers to patient anxiety. T stands for tachypnea or difficulty breathing. And S stands for stridor. Now, it's important to state here that the order of symptoms and signs within the algorithm is not based on the timing of their presentation. Ultimately, the presence of any of these signs may illustrate the evolution of a hematoma so they represent more triggers for suspicion rather than a picture of exactly what every hematoma should look like. And the presence of any of these signs should prompt clinical review with a suspicion of a potential post-op hematoma. Within the published guidelines, the authors have also created a really useful cognitive aid that can be displayed near these patients to assist in ensuring staff have an index of suspicion and know what to look for. Interestingly, there is no evidence to support the use of drains after thyroid surgery as a method of preventing post-op hematoma formation. It's important to remember that clot formation may prevent free drainage through a drain and can potentially result in a false sense of security and reassurance. Recommendation number two states that the minimum monitoring for these patients should include wound inspection, early warning and pain scoring, as well as an awareness for more subtle signs like agitation, anxiety, difficulty in breathing and discomfort. Now, when looking at timings and when hematoma actually occurs, the majority of cases evolve within the first 24 hours of thyroid surgery, with about half of these occurring within the first six hours after surgery. Cases presenting after the first 24 hours are very rare, and indeed, most patients are discharged home by day one postoperatively. The advice from the authors is that hourly observations should be carried out for the first six postoperative hours and observations in the following 18 hours should be tailored to the patient and local policies. Keep in mind that the presence of any of the symptoms of hematoma should prompt more frequent observations. As these patients have the potential to deteriorate very rapidly as the hematoma evolves and airway compromise ensues, it is important that these patients should be nursed in beds that are highly visible from nursing stations. Mm. For these patients, multi-bedrooms may confer an additional level of safety as others present on the ward can also alert nurses in the event of a problem. 
And as we stated previously, a high index of suspicion and staff that are trained in recognizing and managing the post-thyroidectomy hematoma is an absolute must. And a minimum requirement postulated for monitoring these patients should include wound inspection, the early warning score, which incorporates monitoring respiratory rate, heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, oxygen saturation, and Glasgow Coma score, a post-operative pain score, and an awareness of the more subtle and non-specific signs of agitation, difficulty breathing, and general discomfort. The third recommendation is that a post-thyroid surgery emergency box should be available at the bedside of patients who have undergone thyroid surgery during the post-operative period, including during transfers. Rather than just taping a suture cutter to the patient's pillow, which is often what has been done thus far, the authors propose that a formal emergency box containing equipment to assist in managing post-thyroidectomy neck hematomas and opening up the neck wound should be immediately available. They propose that the contents of the emergency box should include the following. An artery clip. Printout of the management of suspected hematoma following thyroid surgery guideline, which we will talk about a little later in the episode. Printout of the scoop guideline, again, which we'll talk about a little later. A scalpel, scissors, and sterile gauze or a wound pack. The box may potentially also include sterile gloves and a staple remover if staples were used to close the patient's wound. Though it's not formally recommended within these guidelines per se, the authors acknowledge that in many national and international transfer guidelines, suitable airway equipment should be available for patients at risk of airway compromise. At this point, we want to deviate briefly from the DAS guidelines to mention that ANSCA has published a professional document, PG52, called the Guideline for the Transport of Critically Ill Patients. We won't talk about every component of the document, but really want to mention that it lists airway equipment that should be present within the airway grab bag. Though post-thyroidectomy patients are rarely deemed critically ill, they do represent a group of patients that are at higher risk of airway compromise given the potential post-operative complications of their procedure. Though it's not standard to transfer these patients from a PACU to the post-operative ward with airway equipment present, you certainly wouldn't be criticised if you wanted an airway grab bag handy if you were truly concerned. Although in the event that you were worried about a patient's airway, transfer prior to securing the airway or managing the cause of the potential airway compromise would certainly not be advised. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've got any doubt, you're not going to shove them down the corridor, are you? Absolutely. Moving on to recommendation number four, it states that emergency front of neck airway equipment, for example, scalpel, bougie and tracheal tube, must be readily available on wards caring for patients after thyroid surgery. Now, it's worth mentioning that the presence of emergency resuscitation trolleys on all wards is fairly Mm standardised, and these, of course, do contain airway equipment. That said, keep in mind that patients with a respiratory compromise as a result of impaired venous drainage in the setting of a post-thyroidectomy hematoma, laryngeal and vocal cord edema may be actually severe enough that standard intubation is either incredibly difficult or frankly not even possible. Whilst our difficult airway trolleys have equipment and specific packs for front-of-neck access, or FONA as you may hear us refer to it, that equipment may not be present as a standard on ward-based resus trolleys. And even if this equipment is readily available for wards regularly caring for post-thyroidectomy patients, it's important to keep in mind that on occasion, these patients are outliers on other wards not as familiar with the usual post-operative course or risks that these patients have. In these instances, having a specialised post-thyroidectomy airway grab bag that actually stays with the patient may be something worth considering and implementing in your institution. Recommendation 5 states that if concerned about potential hematoma following thyroid surgery, immediate senior surgical review, for example, a senior registrar or consultant, must be arranged. 
If senior surgical review is not immediately available or if there are signs of airway compromise, a senior anaesthetist should be informed immediately. So I like this recommendation mainly because it reassures nursing staff and junior doctors that it's okay to contact Mm. either a surgical registrar or consultant immediately and if they're concerned or an anaesthetist. I also like that it's getting clinicians that are trained in how to both evacuate a clot and potentially manage airway compromise to the bedside ASAP. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, the DAS authors have created a second infographic, which is a flow diagram for how patients with a suspected hematoma following thyroid surgery should be managed. It begins with oxygenate and evaluate. Applying 15 litres per minute of oxygen and sitting the patient up to 45 degrees is the first step before calling for immediate review from either a senior surgeon or anaesthetist and increasing the frequency of the observations that the patient is receiving. Evaluate refers to assessing the patients for signs of the hematoma. Remembering earlier that we discussed the acronym DSATS, which stands for Difficulty Swallowing or Discomfort, Early Warning Score Increase, Swelling, Anxiety, Tachypnea or Difficulty Breathing, and Stridor. In the event that airway compromise is absent, the flow diagram prompts staff to stop and think. Specifically to ensure that oxygen therapy is continued, that senior surgical and anaesthetic clinicians are aware of what's happening or present, and to start planning for a return to the operating theatre. It also prompts staff to consider administering dexamethasone or tranexamic acid, keeping in mind that neither will have an effect that is immediate. In the event that airway compromise is present, the flow diagram prompts staff to again call for help and to evacuate the hematoma, specifically advising that both superficial and deep layers are opened and cleared. At this point, we'll move on to recommendation number six, which states that if the patient shows signs of airway compromise due to hematoma, a systematic approach should be taken to open the wound at the bedside. For this, we recommend using the SCOOP approach. SCOOP is another acronym that describes a method to go about evacuating a neck hematoma. And there is yet a third really great infographic within the article to illustrate how to go about <laughs> These doing guys this. love their infographics, don't they? they? Do. But you know what? I'm okay with that. <laughs> SCOOP stands for, firstly, skin exposure, removing all dressings and gowns near the neck. C, cut sutures. O, open the skin to expose the strap muscles of the neck. O, open the strap muscles to expose the trachea. And P, pack the wound as well as covering it with a sterile pack. In addition to illustrating the preferred method to go about evacuating the hematoma, the infographic also reminds clinicians to contact the crash team and the duty surgeon in the event that an emergency evacuation must be performed. If evacuation of a hematoma fails to improve airway compromise or if the patient deteriorates further, tracheal intubation is indicated regardless of the patient's location. In this instance, it should be anaesthetists that attempt tracheal intubation as these airways represent difficult airways and airway management should proceed in accordance with the DAS difficult airway guidelines. This includes a first attempt with video laryngoscopy and minimising the number of intubation attempts. If clinically appropriate, the advice is to perform an awake intubation. In the setting of life-threatening compromise, intubation should be performed after evacuation of the hematoma. Though it won't reduce the extent of laryngeal or vocal cord edema, it will assist in optimising conditions by preventing worsening of the laryngeal edema, and it will improve the likelihood of a successful first attempt. Now, we all know how easy it is to become task fixated in an emergency. Keeping this in mind, and particularly in the event of significant airway compromise, repeated attempts at intubation should be avoided and there should be early progression to performing phoner. Multiple intubation attempts in a setting like this will only serve to worsen laryngeal edema and delay oxygenation. 
in a can't intubate, can't oxygenate situation, the preferred techniques are either the scalpel bougie technique, which seems to be preferred amongst anaesthetists, or an emergency tracheostomy rather than performing a cannula cricothyroidotomy. Gas trapping is less likely and gas exchange and oxygenation is superior. As we've stated before, phono equipment should be readily available wherever post-thyroidectomy patients are being managed. So at this point, I have to ask, Kate, because I'm kind of curious, have you ever been in a situation like this before? No, I'm lucky. I've never had to deal with a post-thyroidectomy bleed. Well, good. (laughs) Yeah, which has been good. Um, I do remember as a junior doctor, just, uh, you know, I was on a breast endocrine team and I always just remember looking at the scalpel tied to this patient's chest thinking, hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And a feeling of impending doom at the thought of actually having to do something. Oh, gosh. The main things I used to deal with were actually the hypocalcemia when they accidentally ripped out too many parathyroids. But, um, yeah, so that's a whole other story. (laughs) How about yourself? So, look, it wasn't a phoner in the setting of previous thyroid surgery, but I remember when I was working overseas that I received a patient in theatre for formalisation after emergency phoner. The clinical setting was that a very large patient had undergone an anterior neck fusion earlier that day. And even prior to stabilizing the neck with surgery, the patient hadn't had a particularly favorable airway. Now, in truth, I really can't remember many of the details, but the patient was in intensive care. I think the patient was intubated and somehow the tube came out. And a junior ear, nose and throat trainee stepped up and had done a scalpel bougie technique while the anaesthetist in the ICU were attempting intubation and oxygenation from the top, which obviously was never going to go well. Mm. Now, the only thing I really remember with any great clarity is looking at this airway with the energy keel tube already protruding from the front of the neck and thinking about what a freaking incredible job this junior registrar had done. Yeah. And well if done. I won't lie, if I'd had to step, step up and do phoner on this patient in what was a very swollen neck with poor anatomical landmarks, I honestly question how successful I would have been. Mm. And I really hope, honestly, I really hope that this ENT trainee's bosses bought him a really good bottle of wine or at the very (laughs) least gave him the biggest high five of his life because what he did with that terrifying airway was just it was just something to behold Mm. and I only wish I'd been there to see it because apparently the trainee was super chill on the outside even though I'm sure his brain was probably screaming on the inside so I'm just well yeah amazing Recommendation number seven states that when emergency hematoma evacuation has taken place, it is important for the surgical team, usually the consultant, to communicate with the patient, including after discharge. This should include offering referral for clinical psychology support or similar. Now, obviously, emergency hematoma evacuation will likely be distressing both for the patient and for the staff involved, not to mention any family members present on the ward at the time of the emergency occurring. Following the evacuation and definitive in-theatre management, it's important to arrange for appropriate psychological support as well as critical incident monitoring and reporting. And it's important to never underestimate the impact Mm. that an experience like this has on a patient. And under these circumstances, it's important for one of the senior clinicians, usually the surgical consultant, to maintain communication with the patient, including after hospital discharge. That said, I personally think that if I'd been involved with the airway management in a case like this, I'd like to have my own Mm. conversation with the patient, both pre and post discharge, completely separate to the wellbeing follow up that the surgeons are doing. Now, referral to a psychologist or support service should be organised and a duty of candour letter sent to the patient that describes what happened and offering ongoing support where appropriate. 
The impact on the staff involved should also not be forgotten. Mm. Debriefing for those involved should be encouraged and appropriate times and locations for such should be made available. Referral to psychological support should also be offered. As the anaesthetist involved in these sorts of clinical incidents and ANSCA members, we have access to Converge International via the ANSCA Doctor Support Program. Please see the link in our episode notes. For our international listeners that don't practice under ANSCA, your regional colleges and hospitals will have their own established psychology support programs that you can hook into. And this brings us to the final recommendation of the guidelines, that all organisations offering thyroid surgery should support members of the multidisciplinary team, including but not exclusive to anaesthetists, nursing staff, members of the cardiac arrest team and surgeons to attain and maintain competency and skills required to manage complications. In a nutshell, preparation, preparation, preparation. This should include training to familiarise with symptoms of post-thyroidectomy hematoma and how to recognise and subsequently manage it. This should not only be extended to anaesthetist surgeons and post-operative ward staff, but also to emergency response team members and the emergency room staff where these patients may present if this complication develops after discharge, which, if you remember, is rare but not unheard of. The frequency with which this training should be offered ideally should factor in staff turnover to allow for new staff to become appropriately educated in a timely fashion, and also for pre-existing staff to have their pre-attained skills refreshed and maintained. In truth, these opportunities should be maximised where possible, where teaching would ideally incorporate simulation, familiarisation with the relevant anatomy, and should incorporate all team members to understand the group dynamic within a crisis situation. The guidelines recommend that individual training should be repeated every three years at an absolute minimum. So that brings us to the end of our discussion about the new DAS management of hematoma after thyroid surgery guidelines. We thoroughly recommend having a read of the article. It's linked on our episode notes, as we've said previously, and checking out the infographics. They're fantastic. Now, before we sign off, Kate, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Okay, so I've, I'm finishing up clinical and as of this recording, I'm actually finishing up for a little while mm. to go on some maternity leave. And uh, the last case I did, actually, the patient turned out to have COVID oh. in the end. And it's been a while and I haven't got COVID. So winning. Um, hopefully, hopefully that means that the PPE works. And yeah. I, we have discussed this before and we've had feedback from colleagues in, in Sydney and Melbourne that you know, appropriate use of PPE and properly fitted N95 masks are pretty effective. So mm. I guess that's somewhat reassuring. Yeah, definitely. They may not, honestly, like looking back, I haven't actually, I need to go and look at his notes when I get into work later this week, but uh, I think he may or may not have been infectious at the time. Uh, but the okay. point is I'm actually, as much as everyone in Queensland is whinging about wearing yeah. full PPE, we know that Australia actually has the highest at the time of this recording, we've yeah. got one of the highest rates of COVID positivity in the world. Yeah. Well, not ra- I don't, yeah, one of the, I don't, may not be like a race. Like per but capita? Yeah, there's, yeah, we're like the fastest yeah, growing, per I think. Capita, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we should be grateful really to our decision makers and our chief health officer that mm. we're still being appropriately protected by yeah, definitely. PPE. Mm. Mm, definitely. We mm. still, we're still able to change our N95 masks every four hours as is recommended by the manufacturers. Mm. And, you know, we don't, we're not stuck in them for 12 hours and reusing them for several days, yeah. which, you know, to be fair, many clinicians have had to do and... Yeah, and it's, un- it's uncomfortable, but um, I think it's still it's doing probably the more job. uncomfortable to get COVID. I would say you're yeah. right. Yes. <laughs> and what about you? Okay, so what I've learned this week, it's it's a little different. It's not something that's, you know, that's clinically implementable, shall we say, in terms of our practice in anesthesia, or I would argue it's it's quite relevant. 
recently I have been trying to cut down the amount of caffeine that I've been <sighs> drinking. I know, shock horror. <laughs> because I haven't been sleeping well. And I think part of the problem is I'm having it too late. Mm. It's still in my system when I'm trying to get to sleep. And I spend most of the night staring at the ceiling, hating my life. But something I have realized, and I ha- this has happened on a couple of occasions when I've cut caffeine out completely, is I feel so much better and so much more alive mm. when I don't have caffeine. Mm. Or when I'm drinking nominal amounts of caffeine than when I'm actually pumping myself, you know, with five or six cups of coffee a day. So I know it's not clinically relevant, but for anyone that's out there that is finding that they're dragging themselves through their day and they're Mm. relying on lots of coffee, maybe it's worthwhile trying to cut it out. And look, I won't lie, for the initial two weeks that you do that, (laughs) it's pretty rubbish, ripping headaches, gut symptoms, like all sorts of stuff. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. And after that, it's actually amazing how good you feel. So Mm. apologies for having nothing really anesthetic well, relevant. We all know coffee is very relevant. We, we well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I've got a friend that's uh, similar, not with coffee, but with caffeine and yeah, just felt so much better cutting it out and sleeping yeah. better. So, yeah, and the thing is, it seems counterintuitive, but it's yeah, well, it plays with your, you know, your sleep cycles and things, oh, particularly absolutely. later in the day. Absolutely. Yeah, well worth, well worth mentioning. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this great topic. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com with questions or future episode suggestions. Follow us on your favourite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. Consultants and fellows, don't forget to claim CPD for tuning in for this episode. Instructions of how to do so are in our episode notes. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.